If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, I have a really fun announcement today. Beyond the big screen and the history of the papacy are members of the Parthenon Podcast Network. We are not the only members, though. Our captain, so to speak, is Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast. I'm sure most of you are aware of Scott and History Unplugged. Scott has been a multiple-time guest on both Beyond the Big Screen and the History of the Papacy podcasts. Scott and I presented you the series Hollywood Hates History. Hollywood and historical films is the bad gift that just keeps on giving. Scott and I, along with our partners in crime in the Parthenon Podcast Network, also regularly come out with roundtable discussions. You should definitely check those out. In History Unplugged, Scott presents history and even current events from a variety of perspectives, genres, and eras. Today, I'm going to share with you a part of an episode Scott produced that discusses military history, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, game theory, and much, much more. I really think you will enjoy it. If you want to learn more about History Unplugged, how to subscribe, and much, much more, head over to ParthenonPodcast.com, and I will talk to you soon. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. If you ran up to somebody and asked them what one of the most fundamental aspects of human civilization is, first of all, they'd be a little bit thrown off by that question. But if they had to spit something out, they would probably say war. And there's a good argument to be made for that. Many complete works from the ancient world have to do with war, like Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, or Caesar's War Chronicles. 
You can find all sorts of quotes about the universality of war. Plato said, only the dead have seen the end of war. Or, more contemporary, John Steinbeck saying, all war is a symptom of man's failure as a thinking animal. It's just, uh, it's easy to assume that humanity's natural state is war, or armed conflict between groups or great powers is inevitable. What if that isn't true? What if war is actually the exception and not the rule, and the reason we have so many accounts about war is because it's so remarkable? What if we assign too much importance to war in history because of selection bias? After all, the Americans and the Soviets managed to divide Europe among themselves without nuking each other during the Cold War. Pakistan and India have had a perpetual standoff for decades, and so have North and South Korea, and there's a constant deadlock in the South China Sea. But there's been no major war there. Looking at Europe, France and England exited peacefully from their African colonies as soon as it became clear they might fight for independence. The Soviets retreated from Eastern Europe without large-scale war. This is exactly the argument made by today's guest, Christopher Blattman, author of the new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Christopher is a professor of global conflict studies at the University of Chicago. What he did was synthesize decades of social science from politics, economics, and psychology to help people understand the reasons for war. But in doing so, he used game theory to explain the five reasons why wars happen. Much of his work was on street violence and civil wars, including gang violence in Chicago, but he argues that the same principles apply to nations at war as well. So it can help explain, for example, why Russia invaded Ukraine, why it took so long for the U.S. to leave Afghanistan, why he thinks it's unlikely the U.S. will have a civil war, and what to do about spiking gang violence in big American cities. But it's not just about war, it's also about peace. He discusses remedies that shift incentives away from violence and get parties back to deal-making, and discusses situations in which compromises and trade-offs have worked. So this is an unconventional approach to how we understand war and its place in history, but it gives us a lot to think about. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Christopher Blattman. Your book synthesizes decades of research to explain the reasons for war using game theory, everything from urban gang wars to nation-state conflicts involving tomahawk missiles and siege operations. So we're going to explore your theory in great detail, but let's start off with an application of your theory on a topic that's on everyone's mind and then work our way back. Why did Russia invade Ukraine? Well, thanks for having me. You know, I've been asking myself that same question and talking to all of my colleagues and thinking about this a lot. I will say like the, you know, what I was trying to do with the book is not so much just bring game theory, but actually bring all these other tools, including all of the tools we have some from psychology and other social sciences. And, and I think a lot of those are familiar to people. And so the game theory stands out as, as new or something they haven't heard before, and that's true. But, but actually, to someone who's familiar with game theory, they're really unfamiliar with a lot of the other stuff that I'm bringing. So it's, in some ways, it's an attempt to marry them. And that's like a nice sort of stepping off point for talking about, I think, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, because, because I think that's the thing we, have, we don't know and we have to figure out, is how much of this is irrational and non-strategic and how much of this is rational and strategic. And people really disagree. I have a close colleague, a Russian here at the university who's a game theorist, who's inclined to think of everything as strategic and who used to be the head of the top economics school and university in Moscow. And he is convinced of that Putin's inner circle is degenerated, that it, they're ideological, that they are, have bad information, that they're making mistakes. And these two classic, what I think of as classic explanations for war is one is just some people value something so much that they're willing some nationalist ideal or or their own glory or some other thing that they're they're willing to pay this tremendous cost of war others think that you know our wars come because our leaders make gross strategic errors and and that's a lot of the common explanation for Americans have for their own country's invasion of Afghanistan and, and Iraq often 
and that's that's partly true. I think my con my 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 colleague Constantine is is probably exaggerates these things, and like a lot of people, pays too little attention to what I think are really important strategic forces. We have a ten you know we we have to be aware of our own mistakes and irrationality, which are to like dehumanize and denigrate and have sort of a rigid poisonous view of our enemies. And and I think we fall into a trap when we underestimate how strategic Russians will be. And and so there there are ways to think about what is the strategic logic of this invasion? And, you know, really briefly, I would say a lot of it has to do with the self-interest of Putin's regime and not seeing a democracy and not seeing Ukraine grow, grow closer to the West, a closing window of opportunity to halt that before Ukraine becomes more powerful, both economically, but armed by the West. And then just the tremendous amount of uncertainty that surrounded this beforehand. We tend to think that, oh, they made mistakes, they were naive, they underestimated all these things. When and then we kind of forget just how uncertain we all were and how even uncertain the intelligence was and how so many of us got so many aspects wrong from the pluckiness and strength of the Ukrainians to the problems of the Russian military to the Western unity on sanctions. None of, none of these were, all these were within the realm of possibility, but they were all really bad draws for Russia on all the things that could have happened. So I think we need to pay attention more to those strategic factors and not get too carried away with the intangible incentives and the misperceptions of Putin and his cronies. We're going to get into all those particular case studies because I would like to hear your explanations that either add nuance to what people traditionally thought, whether America being Afghanistan or even revisionist accounts of it. But let's start off first to unpack your theory. When you were researching what other historians and political scientists had said as the primary explanations for war, whether it's von Clausewitz or other people, Mm -hmm. What did you notice was lacking about these theories? And did you see the problems in the academic literature or was it your firsthand experience doing things like interviewing current and former Chicago gang members or soldiers in Uganda? Right. Well, you know, actually, it wasn't so much that I saw the mistakes of all these predecessor researchers and thinkers. It's I started to see what was common at all these different levels. So when I was working to study ethnic conflict and reduce within and between village and regional conflict in Liberia, a lot of the patterns I was seeing really matched a lot of the theory that I think others have used to explain the violence among nations. And the same is true when I began studying and working to reduce violence between armed groups and cities, especially gangs and criminal groups in Chicago and in Medellin, Colombia. So what I, what I think I appreciated was both, I think some of the, the strategic and non-strategic forces that had come to us from literally decades of research, right? So, you, you know, I don't want to even call this my theory. I want to call this my synthesis of, and translation of what we know from hundreds and, or thousands of psychologists and political scientists, kind of trying to boil it down to make sense of it for, for a general audience. Because I kept waiting for someone to write this book, and nobody ever did. So, so anybody could have written this book in my field. I just bring my own perspective from from having seen it at, at a much more local level. So I realized that in order to solve these problems of violence at a city level or at a village level, we needed to be able to think about the same common principles and learn from the same common principles that govern war between nations. You list out factors that cause war to happen, but you note that wars really shouldn't happen and oftentimes don't. And that's something that is missed by lovers of history because all the oldest records we have have to do with taxes and war. And yeah. people can study nothing but military history if they want to. And there's plenty of material. 
But you know, early in your book that something we miss out on is war is actually rare. This could be due to selection bias. And you give the example of a World War II statistician who looked at World War II bombers and saw that those who returned had their wings shot out, but not their cockpits or engines. And he responded somewhat counterintuitively that we need to armor more cockpits and engines, even though they hadn't been shot out. So can you describe this example and then lead into why war is actually rare and we miss this? Right, because the military wanted to arm all the parts of the plane that were coming back with these bullet holes, which made a certain sense. But what this statistician Abraham Wald deduced was that actually the reason we don't see holes on those parts of the plane is because those are the ones that didn't come back. And so there was this survivor bias that was governing our decision about like basically how to sort of not how to be more peaceful, but how to defend ourselves. And we actually make the opposite mistake when it comes to warfare. We sort of see the bullet ridden carcass after the fact, and it's hard to tell which bullet holes were critical because we, we're not paying attention to all of the successes, all of the many, many other times that war didn't happen. And if we look around, you know, once you point it out, I think it, it becomes really self-evident. Like, think, just think about what's going on around Russia today. Russia has managed to cow most of its neighbors. There's its quote-unquote peacekeepers are in Kazakhstan. It's sort of co-opted Belarus, and the list goes on and on and on. And most of those have not been violent. Likewise, two weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile into Pakistan, uh, and peace ensued uh, because it simply doesn't make sense. And here's here's a rivalry that has been, you know, they've been at odds over borders, over a whole host of issues for decades without any serious level of violence. Some skirmishes, but not not warfare. And everybody, you know, school children for the next three decades, if not longer, are going to learn about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Very few of them will ever learn about the U.S. invasion of Haiti. And that's because it was over before it began. There's this famous account in 1994 how when a coup leader took power in Haiti, ousting a democratically elected president, I believe it's Colin Powell shows up on his doorstep. He'd been a mentor to the or teacher of this guy in a U.S. military college many years before, I believe, and showed him a video and said, here's a bunch of U.S. troops and tanks and things getting on planes, and they're flying here. And by the way, this isn't live. This was taken two hours ago. And the guy surrendered right there. He probably, you know, we don't know what happened next exactly, but he negotiated some terms based on his bargaining power, which is, which made a lot of sense because war would be ridiculously ruinous and costly. And so that's basically the fundamental thing that most of the time we don't fight. We don't fight because war is incredibly costly. That is widely apparent for anybody to see in the current conflict. And so it's not, the puzzle is why we fight at all and why we don't find some other negotiated solution when we, when we usually do. And you make a point to note that there's a difference between personal violence and war, because when you were describing how war is rare, I thought of a Steven Pinker book he wrote a few years ago mm -hmm. called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And he mentions that the chances of dying a violent death at, let's say, the Neolithic period, based on forensic archaeology, something like 10, 15 to 20 percent of people could have died a violent death from what we see. Today, it is a fractional amount of that. I don't know, one in a thousand, simply because the state doesn't sanction you to kill someone very often in America. If you're in law enforcement or if you're protecting your home from an invasion or if you're a soldier fighting overseas, then it would sanction it. But 10,000 years ago, all it would take is a tribal elder to say, oh, yeah, the other tribe over there. Yeah, you can kill them. I mean, you're not going to be ostracized. We need to protect ourselves. There's just more opportunities for violence. Or how would you describe maybe a, a Steven Pinker objection if there would be one? So, yeah, no, I think I think we probably see eye to eye on a lot of things. I think so. First of all, there's sort of two kinds of violence that could go down. One is interpersonal violence. And 
Absolutely. 100%. Culture, norms, uh, the state, all of these things that all this apparatus we've developed in most countries mean that we live with much safer lives than in the past. And that's unambiguously true. And to me, that's the great thing about the rest of the book. After sort of saying, oh, here, violence declines, he sort of walks through a lot of that sociology and history and to sort of talk about the importance of the state and social norms and the humanitarian revolution and so forth. So I totally buy that. What's less true and more disputed is whether or not intergroup warfare, right? Not interpersonal warfare, but warfare between groups, between nations has gone down. And there, the statistics, when, you, when people have done the numbers like Bear Braumiller and others, you know, it's not quite so clear because we have built up some international and other institutions that quell intergroup conflicts, but not entirely. And meanwhile, our weapons have gotten much more powerful. So when conflicts do break out less frequently than in the past, arguably, they're doozies. So we live in a world with, where some kinds of violence have gone down and others still have a way to go. But it, I think it fits very well into the framework. I more bring, I bring both the psychological and game theoretic lens to sort of say why it's the case. And also then why don't we see more intergroup conflict going down? Well, actually, we, it's mostly low. It's mostly rare. But when it does break out, it breaks out because we haven't quite built all the kinds of padding and institutions we need to minimize it further. Well, let's go down your five factors that explain why wars happen. Could you explain them here? Sure. I mean, it goes back to this idea that war is costly. And that, that means peace, have this, peace has almost this like gravitational pull to it because the alternative is so terrible. And so what that means is that anything that leads us to go to war, because we do go to war, means it has to be equally powerful to sort of yank us out of that orbit. And basically, the argument I make in the book is there's, like, there's a million reasons that this happens, obviously, but that there's sort of five common logics, and you can sort most of those reasons into those, those logics or buckets. And each one of them is a kind of a, a reason that the costs are overlooked or overwhelmed. And so one of them, let me do two and maybe two, two I think, maybe the more important, one being more strategic, one, one being in the non-strategic category. The strategic one is, is to say, what happens when we have an autocrat or some kind of unchecked leader? This is a person who, by definition, doesn't have to internalize all the costs of war to their group because they're insulated from them. And so they're going to not consider these in their decision. And so they're going to be too ready to use violence. It can be even worse where they have a private incentive to invade or attack, even against the interests of their group, and their group can't hold them accountable. And we can see that. That's basically was my starting point when I talked about the strategic reasons that we might see. A, we, we, we can look back and, and, and understand the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Putin is not encumbered. He's a personalized dictator. He's not encumbered by accountability to most people, rather to a small circle. And, and so he doesn't have to consider these costs. Uh, he has to consider some, but he may also have a private incentive to want to see democracy exterminated in Ukraine, not because it's a threat to the average Russian, why would it be? Rather, because it's a threat to his apparatus of control to have a people that Russians so closely identify with potentially be a model of an alternative way of life and, and maybe be a, a path to color revolutions in Russia. So that's, that's one story. The other, that's, that's, there's a whole bucket there. The whole, the other, another logic is this one I call intangible incentives. And that's where there's something else that you get that's more ethereal rather than material that leads you to want to fight, that makes, in some sense, the violence worthwhile. And so glory is a classic example. Some nationalist ideal 
And that is the story that many people, including my Russian colleague, tell about Putin's motivations and the motivations of this degenerated inner circle of people with nationalist ideals. That's a kind of intangible incentive. That's saying we believe in these things so strongly that we're willing to take on these costs of war. Costs, by the way, that we don't fully bear. So you can see how these two things, these two kinds of explanations interact. But the logics are distinct. And in some sense, each, and then, you know, I'll, I'll very briefly, the other three I call uncertainty, commitment problems, and, and misperceptions. And two of those come from, from game theory, uncertainty and, and, and commitment problems that basically pointing out the sheer uncertainty of the situation and how in those circumstances, your optimal strategy might be to attack, might be to attack commitment problems being a set of circumstances where your enemy is going to grow more powerful in the future. And so you, it actually makes sense to incur the cost now in order to sort of lock in your superiority for all of time. We see both of those in you know, my earlier explanation. Both of those factors are at work in the strategic explanation. And then the last one is misperceptions, which are all the sort of the human folly and mistakes that we make. And that's, that's where my colleague Constantine really emphasizes you know, his, his sort of lack of confidence in, in the quality of decision-making that's going on in Putin's inner circle. And I think he's at least partly right. Where I don't know is if he's, if he's completely right. A point you made earlier about why war is uncommon. What are some of the factors that make peace a gravitational pull in addition to being expensive? Is it simply, be, it's almost as if war is something that's not natural and you have to be insulated or lack information to fall into is, would you say that's a correct assessment? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.